We are learning Daf Samach Aleph, and we're starting from the very bottom words of Daf Samach Amid Beis, where the Gemara says, Gabe Hektish tonight. So um, we're coming off of the case, Mishnah, where a person got married to a girl, but he made a condition. The condition was, Amanas, that I have a certain real estate. And then the Gemara was trying to figure out what, what satisfies it. So we mentioned that if he claimed that it was in one place and he didn't own it in that place, he owned it in another place, so it doesn't satisfy if she's not married. So now we're going to talk about different components that came up from the base core measurement. The Mishnah mentioned the base core. What is a base core? A base core is an area, a sizable area of land that can grow a core of barley seed. Where's the significance? Like, where does that come from? Usually when we say it's 75,000 square alma, pretty, pretty sizable chunk. The place where we get that from is uh, there's a unique halacha in the Torah, just that gives us a little bit of an introduction to the day. When you donate a field to Hektish, and then if, it's get, if it gets redeemed afterwards, you normally you would say, what, what, what price are things redeemed from Hektish? At market value, right? That's, that's the most intuitive thing. Everything's market value. But when there's a, there's a unique halacha, when someone is Maktish, an ancestral field, a field which is part of the family, when it's, you know, that he inherited all the time from Yoshua. So then when you, when you uh, consecrate it and it's by Hektish, so when it's redeemed, it's a unique price. The Torah gives a special price. And it's uh, based upon the, the amount of silver coins, 50 silver coins, based upon this uh, 50 silver shekel, large amount of silver, for a field large enough for, for it to grow a core of barley. Now, not every field, not every field that you donate is exactly that amount, but it's prorated. So it's all, it's all prorated, you know, based upon how big it is, commensurate with that. Also, it depends, it depends how close it is to the oval coming. So if, let's say, it's 50 silver coins right after Yovel, so it's only going to be 25 silver coins when it's only 25 years to Yovel. So there's a whole system that it works in the Torah. We're not learning that system today, but there's going to be laws which are based upon that. So anyways, Gabi Hektish, none. In regards, uh, regarding someone who's Maktish, consecrated property, the Mishnah says, a Maktish someone who consecrates his field. And again, we're talking about a Steyachuza, an ancestral field. And he was Maktish to the basement. There's a time when the Lovo, the Lovo, the Yovel years uh, were in effect. So what's the halacha? For every year area where homer or barley can be planted and grown, a homer is another word for a court. So for every 75,000 square ama, for the redemption you give, 50 silver coins. Now what happens? Let's say I have a field that is that, that can grow a, core, a base core, but the problem is there are nikaim amukim. So there's like holes and crevices that are 10 tefachim deep in parts of the field. So in other words, it's not a perfect piece of land that just has, you know, plumatable stuff throughout all the 75,000 square ama. Certain parts of it, there's these little clefts that are 10 tefachim deep. So, oh, slum gubam or there might be rocks that are on top of the field, um, which are 10 tefachim high. So, enim dan nima. So those are not measured together with the rest of the field. In other words, when you're determining the total area of the field, don't count the rocks more than 10 tefachim, don't count the clefts that are, that are, that are 10 tefachim deep. And therefore, Again, let's just say it was exactly 75,000 ama, and then you just had a few of these things. You would subtract some of the value, okay? Some of the value, again, it's 50 silver coins per 75,000 ama. So if somebody's under 75,000 ama has rocks that were high or these deep, um, these deep holes in the ground, so then they wouldn't be counted, they wouldn't be counted in that. But if these clefts or the rocks are less than 10 tefachim deeper, they could be measured. They're just bottled to the overall size, and they're measured together with the 75,000. So first, before we develop what we want, the Gemara says, when we learn this, when we learn this mission, we had a question. 
What does it mean that if they're 10 Tvachim deep, you're not, they're not measured? The clefts might be 10 Tvachim are not considered part of the land. You can understand they're a different part of it. They're a different field. And you can understand why. Because they're on a totally different level. It's like they're one, one, one level is 10 Tvachim and then only 10 Tvachim down. You got a hole. It's its own thing. But they should become Kaddish as their, their own unit. So meaning the question is, why are we saying they're not measured with it? And, it, and the implication is that like, it's just not become consecrated, nothing irrelevant at all. Why, why can't they become Kaddish on their own right? So the Gemara, the Gemara is under, assuming that we're talking about that the holes are plantable as well. The holes are just, they just happen to be 10 Tvachim deeper. So they should be, we should make their own, our own calculation for the holes. And would it make a difference? So the Rishonim explained it would make a difference though in the calculation because if you're just saying it's with the whole field, so then even some of the incline is measured together with it. But if it's okay, it's not, it's a different field, so you'd measure it, but it might be a little bit different because you're only going to be measuring the bottom space and the bottom of the pit. So it might come out a bit of a different calculation. But the mission was mashma, like for anything, any any holes that are less than 10 Tvachim, like just don't 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 acknowledge them. Like imagine like that space doesn't exist, only focus on the top. Why? You should focus on the bottom also. And just and just make your own calculation. The chitema, maybe you'll say, Kamadullah base core lochash. If any area of land that's less than a base than a, ba- than a than a base core simply is not significant, and the whole standard of fifty shekels never applied. The whole idea of that if you're Magdish a field and you redeem it from Magdish, you do it at fifty shekel per base core. That's only true once I have a big field. But if it's small, I don't have such a law. That's not true. I mean, it says in the in the price so that when we consider the language of the pasuk, when a person is Magdish a sada a field, matamalomar. What does the pasuk add? What does it mean by adding the word field? Because it says later in the pasuk, there's a chomer of barley that's that's seeded, right? When you plant a chomer of barley, so it's fifty silver, fifty silver coins. And the So I would only know that this redemption rate of fifty silver coins is only if it's done in that way. If you're makdish a big field that is capable of making a full core of barley, but neither What if I did half? A lesach or a half lesach. A lesach is half a core, so a half lesach is a quarter of course. Saw a tark of a chazi tark, even much smaller. Saw a tark of a half a tark, a filu rova, even a quarter kav. Minayan, how do I know, again, that it's going to be based upon the rate of 50 shows over coins per base core? How do I know that I take that? Um, equation, 50 silver coins per base core, and apply it to smaller sizes of the land as well. Tamiloma, the Torah adds this extra word, sada, a field, mikomakom, whatever size the field is. So even these little pits, even if they're not going to be measured as part of the field itself, then they should be measured in their own right, with their own calculation, and they should also be shy to the halacha, and the same, again, with the equation of what it commensurate to 50 shekel per base core, how much would this be redeemed for? So why are you not acknowledging them? So when we when we had this question, we gave an answer. And the case is that the, the holes were filled with water. Therefore, they're not, they're not plantable. The whole unique halacha, but when you're maktish a seyachuza, that you don't redeem it at market value, but rather 50 silver coins per base core, that's all when it's plantable, because that's the din in the Torah. The whole point is that it's per place that can grow a core. But if it's not a place that you can plant in, so then if it's not fit for planting, so then you simply disregard it completely. And it's, it's just like regular market value as no, it's not subject to this whole halacha. Dekanami, we could tell this also that it's probably filled up with water. It said pits and it also said rocks. So just as a rock is a place where you can't grow, can't plant, so too, presumably the, the holes are things that can't grow. Shmamina, we see that they've been filled with water. Says the Gemara, Ihachi, if this is the whole point that it's all about whether you plant or not. So what are we coming out? That the whole case when it's when it's ten deep, that, that it's not part of the field and you don't you don't consider it, is all when it's filled with water. So it's not 
it's not possible to plant there. So if we're talking about that it's filled with water and you can't plant, I feel even if they're less than 10 Tvachim deep. Why, why did we say if it's less than 10 Tvachim deep, then they're considered, they're measured together with the field? Why are they measuring them together with their field? They're not, they're not plantable space. So meaning, once we establish that the case is that they're filled with water, so then why now, if it's less than 10 Tvachim, are we saying it's measured with the field? Why is it measured with the field? Why don't we say this part of the field you can't plant in? So the Gemara explains, Hani Gani Mikru, Mikru. The bigger one, the smaller, the smaller holes are just called basins of the land, or the smaller rocks are just called spines of the land. What do we mean to say? There are some times where you can have a blemish, but if it's small enough and it's just, it's, it's, it, and it's just mixed in together with the field, then it's just the rock of the field. It's not, it's not significant enough that you would even assess it in its own right at all. It's just the basin of the land. So when it's 10 Tvachim deep, it's its own thing. Okay, so then I have to assess, is it plantable or is it not plantable? If it's not plantable, it's not going to be shot to these halachas. But when it's less than 10 Tvachim deep, it's so bottled to the land, they're just, even though it's unplantable, but it's so subordinate to the land because of its location, it's within 10 Tvachim of the land from the top. So therefore, even though technically this particular piece of the land is not plantable, but it's automatically just subordinate to the overall space. All right. So now you might be wondering, what in the world does this whole discussion have to do with us? So now we're going to see. So what happens, that's all if someone is redeeming consecrated land. So we're saying that the, 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 the rate of 50 silver coins per base core will include the rocks and the holes that are less than 10 tvachim, even if they're not plantable. What about someone who's selling? Imagine you're doing a real estate deal and you buy a base core and some of it has these little rocks there. Some of it has these holes. Is that, is that, is that a messed up deal? Can you, know, can you avoid the deal? So someone said, I'm selling you base core land. If I find the property, there are holes that are 10 Tvachim deep or rocks that are 10 Tvachim high, then they're not measured with the rest of the field because he basically, the guy says, I asked for a field. A base core. That's a different thing, right? That's a different field. That's a different area. Once it's 10 Tvachim deep, but if it's less than 10 Tvachim, automatically they're measured together with the rest of the field, meaning they're included in the field. That's just the way the field comes. This is true. The deep holes are, even if they're not filled with water, and therefore they are fit for planting, they still don't count towards the total area of the land. Why? What my time? What's the reason? Why are deep holes not counting? If they're not filled with water, why can't they count? You don't want a field, even if it's technically all suitable for planting, but you want it one continuous field. You don't want a field here and then 10 Tvachim deeper as another field. When I expect my field, I expect it to be one continuous field. I don't want to spend my money and walk away with different pieces in different locations. I don't want that. So therefore, even if the holes are, are not filled with water, when a sale, a guy has the right to void the sale if, 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 if the property has, has holes which are 10 Tvachim deep. So now we understand there's already a big contrast between hektish and sale. By hektish, it's just a question of getting the consecrated value. What is it? Is it market value? Is it 50 silver coins per base core? And there we say, is it plantable? Is it not plantable? But by selling things, we see a different kapeta. There's a different right to avoid a sale. I don't want when there are 10 tefachim holes. I don't want that. But hachamai, what about by kedushin? When a person said to a woman, I'm being makadishu, I'm an asa, I have a base core of land. Should I include the deep holes? That's the question. If there are deep holes on a property, it's exactly 75,000 ama. But some of the property has deep holes, which are, let's say, even suitable for planting. They're not filled with water, but they're deep. So it's not something that if it would be a deal, you know, the, the buyer would be upset about. What would be? Would that satisfy the stipulation for here for a condition or not? Do we compare it to Do we compare it to the sale? 
Uh, do we say that they count here? Mustapha Hakdish with Imino Lagmar says it's more Mustapha to be compared to Hakdish. We do count the holes that are ten tefachim deep as long as they're suitable for planting. To Amar Lagos, the man says to the woman, What do you care if it appears like one field or not? You are just interested in me having real estate. Why are you interested in me having real estate? So you get produce, right? You think you're working out in the field? I'll do it. I'm the, I will toil and plant the crops deep in the, and deep in the holes and I'll bring them back to you. So basically, what he's saying is, It's not your issue. As long as I have 75,000 um, size of lands, then I've satisfied my stipulation. The fact that some of them, some of the land is higher, some of the land is lower, that doesn't concern you. I'll be the one to bring the produce, and therefore she would, it would satisfy the Kedushin. She would be Mekodesha. So to summarize, we learned the case in the Mishnah. Someone made a Kedushin Amanas that have a base core of land. The Gemara is interested in knowing what about if that base core is composed somewhat of deep holes. Could that work? And we end up saying that, yes, it could work. By a sale, if you're a buyer, it does not work. You can claim, I'm not interested in that piece of land. I don't want to have some here and some there. And by hectish, that's how we got into all of this. By hectish, there's all different sorts of considerations, whether about it's considered shy of the plant or not plant, if it's filled with water or not. All right, now we start a whole new sugya, Kishmaka sugya. Let's just give an introduction to this sugya. There's a concept of making tinam. Where does the idea come from that I can make a kedushin al tanai? And then say, if the tanai works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And just to explain, the Akhrinim say, tanai is something which isn't so intuitive. In other words, let's just understand. The basic idea of tanai would say, I'm only having das with this condition. Like, it's like conditional intent. Intent only one-sided. But the Akhrinim explained it might be more complicated than that. Because it's like, when you're making a chalais, you either have das or you don't have das. What is this? A tanai is more like an outside power that I have put into the das that I'm making, another power of das, which will break what I'm doing. So in other words, a person says to a woman, I'm being makadashi. I'm going to ask that, you know, um, I give you 200 zos. The idea is I'm being makadashi. I have das kedushin. There's another das that I've attached here, that if I don't give the, the 200 zos, it should break the kedushin. Where do we know that that comes? Where do we know that that works? And the answer is we know that that works from Moshe Rabbeinu and Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain. The story was Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain was on Eber HaYardin and they weren't interested in going into Eretz Yisrael proper. They just wanted to settle the land there. But a very important introduction is that everyone was going to get a chilek in, in Eber HaYardin. Eber HaYardin was conquered by the Jewish people. The same way Eretz Yisrael proper was, so too was Eber HaYardin. It was going to be annexed, if you'd like, as part of Israel to a certain degree. Certain levels of Kedusha are there in Eber HaYardin. and Shumas and Maizu. Certain things as part of Eretz Yisrael. But but Bnei Gad Rubin was saying, just to understand their time a little bit better and deeper, is we're, we're really somewhat in Eretz Yisrael already, so let's just stay here. That's what they wanted. And uh, they had certain considerations why they wanted that. Moshe Rabbeinu Lamaisa gave them a following response. He said, I'll give it to you, and you can have the whole thing. And just to understand that, Moshe was giving them more than they would have received, meaning without their request, everyone would have gotten a 12th in Israel and a 12th in Eber Yardin. But Moshe said to them, I'll give you everything. I'll give you guys, Bnei Gad Rubin, I'll give you the whole Eber Yardin, on condition that you go fight on the front lines. Chalutzim, you go fight on the front lines in the war of proper Israel. If you fight there, then... This gift is, good, is a good gift. But if you don't go fight, then the gift is not a good gift. So Moshe gives it to them. But he makes a condition. It's only yours, but tonight that you go fight later. If you don't go fight later, then, then it's all bought. So now Remeyer says a very important point. That's the paradigm of how to make a, how to make a stipulation. So if you now make a stipulation that's not made in the same um, articulation in the way that Moshe Rabbeinu made it, it's not binding. So what, what's the point that Moshe Rabbeinu did? Many points, but let's just mention the one, the one that we're going to deal with the most. Moshe Rabbeinu said to them, if you go, then you can keep the land I gave you. If you don't go, you won't keep the land. 
Moshe Rabbeinu said it both sides. He said it in the positive and he said it in the negative as well. This is called Tanai Kofel, a double stipulation. If you go, you'll go. If you, that, it will be yours. If you don't go, it will not be yours. He didn't just allow it to be the inference. He articulated it both sides. From here, Rameir says, that's the only way to make a Tanai. So let's say by us, by Kedushin, if a person says, I'm a Kaddish, I'm an Asa, I give you 200 Zuz. So he has to say, if I give it to you, it will be Kedushin. If I don't give it to you, it won't be Kedushin. You have to say it both ways. If you don't say it both ways, it's as if you didn't make it tonight. The whole thing is there, not this bato mavato. So what, the whole idea, it seems like that Chorin of our developing, is tonight is not intuitive. Tanai is not intuitive. It's Xeris HaKosov that when I make the stipulation, it has the power to break what I did. If you make it the way motion did, it will work. If you don't, not. Now, we'll also see, though, in the Gemara that possibly there's another subtle issue going on here. And the other subtle issue is maybe inferences are not rock solid. Things have to be said. If you want to make a Tanai, it better be with the highest power of speech. And what's his proof? His proof of the way Moshe spoke. If you go X, Y, and Z, and if you don't go X, Y, and Z. So he said both ways. No, your whole, your whole, your whole premise is off. You know why Moshe Rabbeinu needed the second statement? Really, to make a Tanai, you don't need to make a double stipulation. The reason Moshe had to say that if you don't go, you're not going to get Avery Arden. It's not to tell them. It's not to tell them that 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 they're not going to get the land. That could have been inferred, but the point was, you someone could say that if they don't go fight, you know what's going to happen? They're not going to get forget about Avery Arden. They're not going to even get in Israel, right? I remember, without their request, they would have gotten a twelfth everywhere. Moshe Rabbeinu says, "I'll give you a whole Avery Arden if you go fight." If you would have just said that, what would the implication have been? And if you don't go fight, maybe what? Maybe you don't get anything. Maybe you get penalized and you won't receive anything. So Moshe Rabbeinu had to say, no, if you don't go fight, you won't get a very yard, and you'll just get a profit, you'll just get a 12th like everybody else. So therefore, Rabbi Hanim Gamliel is saying, he's saying, you're making a whole limut. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu repeated and said, and if you don't go, then you won't get, you're making a whole limut from here that you need to not call You're wrong. Moshe Rabbeinu had to say it simply because otherwise the inference would have been that they wouldn't have gotten anything. So therefore he said it to correct that point that if they wouldn't go, they still would have um, received the chilak in Eretz Yisrael. <coughs> Correct. That's what it. That's what it seems. We'll see in the Gemara some of the details. Says the Gemara. Shaper commonly Rabbi Chanan Rameir. And Mamish sounds like he's saying a great point. How could Rameir learn out from here tonight? Awful. Moshe Rabbeinu had to say if you don't go, then you're not going to get a very high day. To emphasize that they would still get Eretz Yisrael. You're right, good point, but there's still extra words in the Also, If you don't think it's really coming to tell me you need a Tanai Kofel, it's just coming to clarify that they would still get the portion of Eretz Yisrael if they didn't fight. It could have just said if they won't cross, they would inherit in the midst of Klal Yisrael. The final words of the Pasuk, the Eretz Canaan, in the land of Canaan, those are extra words. Lamali, those are extra words. It could have just said Besochachem. So, therefore, he says, he's coming to tell me, Eretz Canaan is representing, is representing like a mirror image of the opening statement of Moshe Rabbeinu. That, that, that what he's saying is, and if you do go fight, you won't get Eretz Canaan, but rather get the whole Eretz Yardin. And if you don't go fight, so then you're going, you're, you're going to, you're going to get in Eretz Canaan. So Moshe, I mean, basically, he's saying that the extra words in the pasuk are coming to teach me uh, the point of tonight. Kafal. So what's what what are we saying back? Moshe could have just said, 
says back, you would have, you would inherit b'sochachem together with mitzvah klal The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu adds be'aretz kenan, those are extra words that we dash. Rachlin and Gamliel, he looks at be'aretz kenan. If he didn't say be'aretz kenan, Avimin, I would say. If no, so b'sochachem Maybe I would say like this: If you don't go fight, you will receive one twelfth of eretz gilad of the Avar Yardin. You'll if you don't go fight, you're not going to receive the whole. You'll only receive one twelfth of it. And maybe receive nothing across the Jordan River. So the land, the words Be'eret Canaan are necessary to tell me that if they don't fight, they're still going to receive a portion in the land of Canaan. So what are you saying? They're extra words. They're not extra words. So the Gemara says back for a mayor, No, B'Sochem is Mashma wherever the land is, both on the east and on the west. So it could have just said, and if you don't go fight and you'll get You'll get a 12th here and a 12th there. So it sounds like you, from the Pasha Pashan and the Gemara, that, that what the Gemara is saying is that if they wouldn't have gone to fight, and they would have just been, then it would have been just as if they had never made the request. A 12th here and a 12th there. They wouldn't have been penalized at all. And, and therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu could have just gotten away. Rabbi Meir says, If you don't go fight, you'll get together with everyone. What is together with everyone? A 12th year and a 12th there. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to say, And those are extra words that come to tell me tonight, Kofel. So let's just go over the point. If they would go fight, they're being given all of the eastern side. And they're not going to get anything in Eretz but they're getting all the eastern side. They're getting a lot more land for their for, with their request. Okay, great. Moshe Rabbeinu said, and if you don't go fight, then you're going to be nochsu besochem be'aretz kenan. Rabbi 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 Gamliel is saying all those words are are important. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them that if you don't go fight, don't think you're going to lose. You're not going to lose your portion in Eretz Yisrael or wherever. I think you're just only going to have a twelfth in both spots. That's what Rabbi Gamliel is saying. Rabbi Meir says it could have just said nochsu besochem to say that. The fact that it said be'aretz kenan, those are extra words. It's coming to tell me a whole new halacha that the whole tonight was only binding because he said it again. He said the opposite side. Says the Gemara. Tanya, it says in the Let's give an analogy to this whole stipulation. Someone was dividing his possessions amongst his children. Amar, he said, My first son, let's call him Ruvain, should inherit this field. My other son, let's call him Shimon, should inherit another field. And then a third son, Levi, should pay 200 zoos, and then he could inherit the last field. And if he will not give the 200 zoos, then he should just divide, get a portion of the other possessions, the first two fields, together with his other with his other uh, with his uh, with his with his other brothers. So the last son here, the Nimshal, that's like God Uruvain. And the first two sons represent the other tribes. So if they would go fight, which is the equivalent of the Nimshal of giving the two hundred Zuz, so then they receive the whole the whole land of Gila, the whole third field. But if they don't go fight, they don't give the two hundred Zuz, then they're only going to receive a share in the land of Canaan um, in the first two fields, along with the rest of Klaisol. That's the that's the idea. So what do we say? Which of the father's statements caused the last son to inherit a portion together with his other brothers? Meaning, if he wouldn't pay, how do we know that he still gets together with the first two fields? It's only because the father doubled that statement. Imagine the father there just said, if you give 200 zuz, you'll get a third field. If you didn't give 200 zuz, you would be inferred he doesn't get anything. So it's only because the father doubled it up and said, and if you don't give it, then you'll still, then you'll get a portion with your brothers in the first two fields. That's how we know it. That's the nimshol over here. Moshe Rabbeinu has to say, if you don't go fight, then you still get a portion in Eretz Yisrael. Otherwise, you would think if you don't go fight, you don't get it all. So first, the Gemara doesn't like it. Although Dami Moshe Masnis, and the Moshe is off. From Rabbi Hanina said to Rabbi Meir in the Mishnah, meaning what did Rabbi Hanina say to Rabbi Meir in the Mishnah? He said that if Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have repeated his words, then it would have been mashma 
that they, they would receive no land whatsoever, both in Gilad and in Canaan. That's what it's mashma in the mission of Lo Yin they won't receive at all. It would have been like a total penalty. They wouldn't have received anything had Moshe not received anything. The Mishnah is saying that the kfeilah, the doubling, was necessary even for Eretz Gilad. Meaning, previously they might not have received any land at all. And Moshe Rabbeinu had to repeat it and saying, if you don't go fight, you'll get at least a 12 together with your brothers here and there. So it doesn't sound like the Bereisa in the same way. Because HaKatani in the Bereisa, Rabbi Hanina says, What causes him to inherit in the first two fields? It's the kvelas. It sounds like the double part of the statement is only helping for the other possessions, for the first two fields, which is mashma that if Moshe would have left out the double part, only would have forfeited a portion in Canaan, but they still would have received received a share in Gilad. So let's just understand what the Gemara, what's, what's going on. We want to know what's false. Let's clarify the issue. Rabbi Gamliel is saying, you're making way too big of a deal of Moshe Rabbeinu repeating it. You're learning Dina with Tanai Kofel. Moshe Rabbeinu had to repeat it. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to repeat it? What would have been different if he did not? So one way of saying it is that they would have received, it would be mashma that if they didn't go fight, they wouldn't receive anything. They wouldn't have received anything. And there, in no matter, in, whether it's in Canaan or in the land of Gilad, Moshe had to repeat it simply to say, even if they don't go fight, they'll get a 12th anywhere. Would have been mashma. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten anything anywhere. The other way of saying it is that that if they wouldn't have gone to fight, we know that they would have received a twelfth in Gilad. But I wouldn't have known that they would have received a twelfth in the land of Eretz Yisrael. Which one is the correct point that Rochanin and Begamliel are saying? It sounds like there's a contradiction between the Mishnah and the Brisa. And the Mishnah is mashma. They wouldn't have received anything at all, and Moshe Rabbeinu not repeated it. But in the Brisa's analogy, it sounds like the Kfelos is coming all for the first two fields for Eretz Canaan. It was mashma that even if they don't go fight for sure, they would have still received the twelfth in Gilad. The question is that Moshe had to repeat it for them to get in Israel. So the Gemara says, Lokasha. There are two steps in the dialogue. Initially, Rav Gamliel made the argument that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't say anything, didn't say Baris Kanan, didn't say anything, they went to proceed at all. But then, Rabbi Meir said back, he could have just said, So then he said back, you're right, good point. And then the point just is, but how do I know it would have been even Baris Yisrael? So the Mishnah is, po- is picking up the dialogue at, at, at step one. The price is picking up step two. After our mayor made his point, no, it could have just said, then Rechamil says, you're right, but then I would have said they're only going to inherit in, a 12th in, in, uh, in Eretz Gilad. How do I know the 12th in Eretz Yisrael? So the dialogue goes like this. Let's get it clear. First, Rabbi Meir says, from the fact that Moshe repeated it, I see Tanai Kofel. Rabbi says, what do you mean? He had to repeat it. I, without that, I would say, if they don't go fight, they don't go to anything. Anyway. Says Rabbi Meir, okay, but then it could have just said, and if you don't go fight, it didn't have to say, Baris Kanan, Baris Kanan are extra words. Says Rabbi Meir, back, no, if it would have said, you would think that if they don't go fight, they'll still receive a 12th in Eretz Gilad, but they're never going to get in Israel. So it had to say, Baris Kanan, that they're all, if they, even if they don't go fight, they'll get a 12th in both locations. That's what the, the two steps in the dialogue. The price has analogy with if the son doesn't give 200, he'll still divide in the first two fields is the step two of the dialogue. It's the nimshal for that point. Moshe Rabbeinu has to say Baritz Kanan because otherwise you would say that the right to the two fields, that he's not going to get even if he, doesn't give, if he doesn't give the 200. You have to say even if you don't give the 200, you're still going to retain a right in the first two fields. So I know it's a complicated whole Indian here with B'nai Gada B'nai Reuven. What ended up happening is that they obviously did fight and they took the whole thing and they didn't take anything else. But had they not fought, what would have happened? Do we have clear Rabbi Yisai? What would have happened? They would have taken a 12th, both in Eretz Gilad, and I think it's one of the most underrated things people don't realize this. Without B'nai Gada B'nai Reuven, what was the game plan? To, to divide Eretz Gilad equally a 12th between all the Shvatim. 
You have to know that. It comes up very clear from the Sugi, learning that, very, very clear. And if they didn't fight, they wouldn't have lost anything. They wouldn't have lost it. It was an opportunity that if they did go fight, then they'll take a, a whole, the whole thing and then and, 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 and it shall not. I also think there's one other point just to keep in your mind, something I'd have never understood. It comes out that all the Shvatim lost land because of Bnei Gadot Ruven's request. I never realized that until I learned the Gemara good. Meaning, the plan originally was that both sides would be divided by, in twelfths. Now it comes out they took a far greater greater amount of land in Eretz Gilad than the forfeiting of what the twelfth that they had in Eretz Israel. So just in terms of square footage, they 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 they, they ended up taking more. However, Lamai said they forfeited land in Eretz Israel proper. So maybe that's all part of the consideration. All right. So now the Gemara. Once we see now there is a give and take between Rameir and Chanina about Tanai Kafel. So now the Gemara assumes that it's not just a dispute in Tanam. It's a machlok as always how to understand language. Does language stated? Can we rely on inferences or not? That's really the question here. So the Gemara now brings a bunch of psukim. There's some of the Rameir, Hanidusiv, and Tetiv says with Kain. Hashem says, if you do better, you'll be rewarded. From Lo if you don't do better, sin will just rest at the door. So meaning, basically, it said a positive thing, and then it said in the negative. Why did it have to say both? So like Rameir, it's good. We don't rely on inferences. Why do we need both parts of the psukim? It could have just said, if you do good, you'll be rewarded. Stop there. Let the inference speak for itself. And if you don't do good, you won't. Must be that you don't rely on inferences, as the Gemara knows. If you do better, you get rewarded. If you don't do better, you don't get rewarded, you don't get punished. Kamash Malan has to tell us, no, that failure to act in the way of Tzitkos is going to be punished, not just with a lack of reward. The Pasuk got to emphasize, no, here we see, there's one question about if you could rely on an inference. There's another question is, do you have the right inference? There's two and done. Even with Hanin Gamliel, that you could rely on inferences, but the inference has to be clear. So there, it wasn't a clear inference. Maybe it's just saying, if you don't do good, then, you know, you don't get rewarded, but there's nothing bad either. The Pasuk has to say that there's going to be punishment. So now we go to Avram and Eliezer. Avram made Eliezer to go get a wife for Yitzchak, but not to take from the, the girls of Canaan, but rather to take from Avram's family. So I'm going to say over the way the Gemara, the way Rashi learns. Rashi learns that he made him make an oath, an oath that he wouldn't, but it was conditional. Only if he went and he tried to take from the, the, the Avram's family, then he wasn't supposed to take from the land of Canaan. But if he asked and they didn't give, so then he was supposed to go to Canaan and take and take a, a wife from Yitzhak from them. So then he would be free of the oath. And if you take a look at the oath, it was both sided. It was like said on both sides. If you go, and if they say no, then you'll be free. So like Rameer, that's why Avram had to double it off. He said to him, if you try and it doesn't work, you'll be free from my oath. The stipulation was was doubled because otherwise it wouldn't be binding. Why did Avram Avinu have to double it off? He just should have said it the first part. That, you, that, that go to my family instead of Ganan, and then it would have been inferred that if my family doesn't give you, then you're, then you're free. Says the Gemara, no, it's Shekha, it was necessary to say both parts. Let's say the woman consents to come back, but her family does not, bring her against their, against their will. Meaning that the Pasuk has to add on to say the point of that you need, you need the people's consent, not only her consent. Kamashma, the Pasuk tells us the family's consent has to be gained. Ah, so now the Gemara just has a question of another Pasuk. Why does it have to say the words if the woman is not willing to follow you? You might say, what about the opposite? The family consents. But the girl doesn't consent. Bring her against her will. So this is the opposite. The family wants it, but the girl doesn't want it. Kamashma, no. Don't do it unless both her family and the girl both consent to it. Which is very interesting. That's exactly the struggle that ultimately Eliezer encountered was getting both the girl and the family on board with it. Right? You have to make sure that both were there. 
Says the Gemara, Bishlam of the Rameh and the Hashem says both ways. In Bechuk if you follow my mitzvahs, good things will happen. And then we have the Tocha, in Bechuk if you do bad things, you get punished. So why does the Torah have to say both ways? Because don't rely on inferences. Why do I need both the bracha and the tochacha? Just say the first idea. The Kalei will get rewarded if they do good. And let it be inferred that if they don't do the right thing, they'll be punished. Says the Gemara, it was necessary. If you do the right thing, you get blessed. If you do the wrong thing, there's no blessing, but not a curse. Come We have to tell us, no, it's not the case. If you do the wrong thing, you will be cursed. If you're willing and you and you listen, then you get rewarded. But if you do bad and you rebel, you're punished. Again, because we don't rely on inferences. Just say, if we obey Hashem, we're rewarded. Answers the Gemara. If you're willing to obey Hashem, good comes. If you refuse, it's not good or bad. Then we have to say, then no, actually, you're going to be punished. Just to clarify one thing, says the Gemara. It says there, you'll be devoured by the sword. So what exactly does that mean? Because just in the grammar, it's a little bit off. Um, literally, it sounds like you're swallowing the sword itself. You're eating the sword. You don't get eating the sword. You get hurt by the sword. You don't eat swords. It's saying you're going to eat bad salt, hard bread made of barley flour and onions. And it's like eating swords. It's like eating things that are bad for you. Pots for many stale bread, but melech with salt, kashim with salt and onions that are, are as bad. Kashim laguf kacharvos are bad to the body, like eating a sword. So that's the pshat in the pasuk. You're going to be eating a sword. That's what it means. It means you're going to be eating food, which is unhealthy for you.